welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by none other than Matt Zoller-Zeitz, editor for RogerEbert.com and an Alex Garland enthusiast like myself. We are going to discuss the new Alex Garland movie Annihilation. It had the all-too-brief theatrical run two months back and was then strangely sent off to Netflix for a kind of afterlife. I just saw the movie again, so there's a blessing, but it's also a curse if movies don't get theater releases, especially movies that depend for their effect on a certain wonder. There are things you see in this movie that captivate you, that set it apart from most movies you'll see on whatever kind of screen of whatever size, but which work best in the large-sized, large-room, darkened environment of the theater, because there's so much to thrill about the movie. It's a movie that explores thrilling images to give you a story and characters that give a sense of what there is to thrill. This is a word that, like all other genre words, has mostly lost its meaning, but it corresponds to some fundamental experiences. We don't have our reactions for nothing, we just don't have them examined. And of course, Alex Garland's not a writer, although he's a movie writer primarily, but he is an artist, and he explores in an artistic fashion the sources of our fears. We've already covered in a previous podcast Ex Machina, which was an explicit attempt to create a full contrast and maybe a confrontation between Genesis and science. It rehearses the story of Genesis at the height of technological modernity with the emergence of full AI and possibly a new creation. This one also does the same by confronting the attempt to understand scientifically radical possibilities of the theory of evolution with the story of the Garden of Eden, the place where creation first happened and all the beings came up. And I don't know if if Alex Garland is a Christian or an atheist, but he cares about these stories, cares enough to get details right and to bring up these images in a way that comes alive for audiences. To start with, a brief overview of the plot. An asteroid hits Earth, but instead of fire and Armageddon, it creates a zone called the Shimmer, where everything starts changing in radical creativity. Teams sent in disappear. For the first time, a team of women is sent after a team of men, scientists after the military, and we get to go along with them and witness this sensational imagery and the dangers this beauty hides. At the center is a character, Lena, played by Natalie Portman in an admirable effort, a former military woman who turned to science and academic life, and who's trying to find out what happened to her husband, a soldier who went into the shimmer before her. Gradually, by a series of surprises we will not spoil for you, she is brought to a radical confrontation with humanity, with life, whether it is good, whether new possibilities are good, whether being human and being the individual human beings each one is, is protected by some sort of providence or not. The movie gets more sensational as it goes along and it has an existential quality of questioning. It has sympathy with its characters and nevertheless exposes them to grave self-doubts and great trials. It's hard to call our protagonists heroes, or heroines rather, but they are admirable in as much as they come to the questions of self-knowledge that we all struggle with. It's unfortunate that the movie did not get more attention, but we're trying to make up for that some. So first of all, Mr. Zeitz, thank you for joining me. Please introduce yourself for our audience and let's talk Alex Garland. 
Okay, so I'm, I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz. I'm the editor-at-large of RogerEbert.com. I'm the television critic for New York Magazine and Vulture, and I'm the author of books on film and television, including the Wes Anderson Collection, The Oliver Stone Experience, Mad Men Carousel, TV the Book with Alan Sepinwall, and the forthcoming book about The Sopranos, which is called The Sopranos Sessions. And I'm a big Annihilation fan. I saw it at a press screening. They actually had press screenings, despite the fact that it barely got a theatrical release. And I was really knocked out by it. And I went back and saw it during its regular release three times. And the third time that I went to see it, I was on Twitter and I invited people to come see it with me. I told them what theater I was going to and what showtime. And to my surprise, the showing was almost sold out. It wasn't a big house. It was about 60 seats, but it was on a Thursday night at 8.20 or something like that. And it sold out and we all went to a restaurant nearby called Schnipper's, which is near the Port Authority. And they blocked off a section of the restaurant for us and we just ordered food and sat there and talked about the movie for an hour and a half. So it was kind of like a film club. And I think I might try to do it again. But we were talking about it, me and all the other people who attended. It was an interesting mix of people who follow me on Twitter. But it was some people who write about movies and are obsessed with movies and own a lot of film books and DVDs and stuff. But there were also people who just were into that particular movie. Like, they didn't necessarily have a rich history of science fiction fandom. They just saw it because they'd heard me or they'd heard someone else talking about how good it was. Or they'd read a good review of it or something. And they went to see it. And the one thing that everybody there had in common was they were obsessed with this movie. And what struck me about it, it was really an eye-opening experience, was I have my own theories about what the movie is trying to say. And it was a pleasant surprise to me to see that other people also had their theories, but they were not the same theories. It's remarkable how this movie offers an avenue of interpretation for everybody based on their own experience and their own preoccupations. For example, I responded to it mainly as a story about grief and trauma and what it does to people and how, you know, when a traumatic experience hits you, you change and you're the same person, but at the same time, you're a different person. And and that's not the only thing I brought out of it, but that's what immediately struck me about it. And, and a number of my friends, including Angelica Jade Bastien, who writes for Vulture and RogerEbert.com. She wrote a very nice essay exploring that particular aspect of the film. But I spoke to other people who saw it as a parable of addiction and recovery from it, people who saw it as being about evolution, and also interpreting it in mythological ways. There was a lot of discussion of the Bible, but also of Eastern religions and Buddhism. And I have a sheet with all of the different interpretations. There were so many theories flying around that one of the people who went to the screening, he took out one of the paper menus from the restaurant and turned it over, and he started writing down summaries of all the different theories that he heard. And I saved it. <laughs> I saved it, and I'm going to have it framed and put on my wall. But yeah, I think it's great. I think it's great. And we're only ha we're not even halfway through the year. We're like a third of the way through the year. But I already can tell you that I'm having a hard time seeing any other movie replacing this one as my number one movie of the year. Because just the sheer amount of time that I've thought about it and discussed it with other people and read about it is remarkable. It's remarkable. It reminds me of the first time that I saw the Terrence Malick film, The New World, 12 years ago. And I became obsessed with that movie, and I wrote two reviews of it and multiple pieces about different aspects of it, including the sound design. And I became known as the Mallet guy for a while, and I'm kind of the Annihilation guy right now. <laughs> and that's fine. That's totally fine. And of course, Malik is a great company for Garland to be in. 
there two of a number of directors who want to get to audiences who do have such varying experiences that they'll come up with theories about it. And, and of course, it's not enough to have different experiences or backgrounds. The movie also has to hit you. It has to find something in you to get this response. Come up with a theory. What is this about? You have to care first and then to try to figure out why you care about it. Directors who do this with existential questions are only a few, and it's great to have them put out the sort of movie where the adventure plays on over two hours in ways strange enough to keep you guessing, but also developing a certain foreboding. You gradually get a sense of where this is going, not necessarily the specifics, but it prepares you for a confrontation. I want to say that it's outside genre expectations, that it's not based on every other thing you've seen before, but I'm not sure that does justice to it, not least of all, because Alex Garland is no enemy of genre. No, he's not. And in fact, this to me was a perfect example of a distinction that I make in the phrase science fiction as applied to any movie that has elements of science fiction. But I'm near absolutist about issues like this. I bristle when I hear movies described by a particular genre label when I don't feel that they've fully committed to that genre. And I would argue that the vast majority of movies that are classified as science fiction are not real science fiction. They are some other genre with aspects of science fiction. For example, Star Wars is not really science fiction. It has the trappings of science fiction, but it's essentially a fantasy like the Arthurian legends or Lord of the Rings. It's a space fantasy, I suppose. Whereas a movie like this one, I think, is true science fiction. And by that, I mean that it deals with ideas. It lives almost entirely in the realm of ideas. And this is something that I think people don't want to hear because we're taught to prize characterization and literary values over this. But I think that characterization is secondary in a true science fiction film. I'm not saying that it's not a good idea to have characters who are interesting and that you care about, but I'm saying that it's not what the movie is mainly concerned with. The characters are a vehicle by which we explore certain ideas. All of the true science fiction films have that in common, whether it's 2001 A Space Odyssey, which just turned 50 this year and which Annihilation reminds me of quite a bit, to something like Alien or Blade Runner or Solaris, both versions. And I think Ex Machina definitely qualifies, and I would say that certain zombie films qualify, like I think 28 Days Later, which Alex Garland wrote and Danny Boyle directed, which is probably my favorite zombie film. And some people don't even qualify that as a zombie film because the creatures aren't undead, they're infected by a rage virus. But to me, that's like tomato, tomato. Yeah. But they all live in the realm of ideas, and they are 100% committed to exploring those ideas. And they are not simply like J.J. Abrams' Star Trek films. They're not just action-adventure movies where the characters happen to use laser guns instead of shooting guns with bullets and fly around in spaceships instead of in helicopters. It's really 100% committed to the point where it becomes a parable, and at times it risks becoming obscure or impenetrable, and it's not afraid of that either. I think Arrival is an example of a movie I would call true science fiction, and I don't think it's as ultimately deep as something like Annihilation, but I think it's got undeniable integrity in the way that it explores what it's looking at. But I want to go back to Malik for a second, because Malik, I think, is an influence on this. And I'll never forget when I showed 28 Days Later to a friend of mine who had never seen it. And this is a buddy of mine who's not a cinephile, but he would come over to my house. He would show up at my house, like, unannounced. He was one of those guys. And we would hang out, and sometimes we would watch a movie. And he would always say, hey, are there any movies I should watch? And I'd put on a movie that I think he should watch. And I showed him The New World. And a few years later, I showed him 28 Days Later, and he said it reminded him of The New World. 
And I said, that's interesting. That's never a connection I would have made. And he said it was something about the feeling of it and the way that it made the landscapes beautiful. And it really paid attention to the interaction of the ruined buildings and the vegetation that was taking them over, which is another connection it has with annihilation. And mostly this idea of nature reasserting itself over civilization now that human civilization has been dealt a catastrophic blow and nature is coming back to take what rightfully belongs to it. That was what he got out of 28 Days Later, which is not an interpretation I've necessarily read in other people's writing about it. But I think that Alex Garland probably has some kind of affinity for Terrence Malick, and I think that they both blatantly, obviously, have a lot in common with Stanley Kubrick in 2001 mode. He didn't always operate in that mode. It was really just that one film when he did. I think David Lynch also lives there a lot of the time, and David Lynch is somebody who operates in the realm of dreams I don't think you could call him science fiction necessarily, although he has made science fiction. But I just mean in the sense that he lives in the world of ideas. That was made clear again most recently in Twin Peaks The Return. In the eighth episode, which is uh, this kind of mythological consideration of what the detonation of the first atomic bomb meant to society. And it's like it's a birthplace of a new kind of evil and a new kind of chaos. At least that's part of what I got out of it. And that entire sequence, that long, wordless sequence where we see the detonation of the bomb and we go inside of it, which is amazing, and it looks like synapses firing in the human brain. It was very obviously in the same vein as the ending of 2001. And the ending of 2001 is in the same vein as that finale of Annihilation where she's facing a double of herself and we're seeing a different kind of creation. But I think what ultimately all of these movies have in common is that they are trying to visualize that which cannot be imagined. And they're coming up against the limits of their own imagination in the process. And this Kubrick book, which just came out by an author named Michael Benson, I've been recommending it to people. I think it's tremendous. It illuminates for me how the creative process is based on not just good ideas and successes, but also mistakes and failures, which lead you to different approaches. And one example of that is the visualization of the higher intelligence in 2001. And I've read some people who assume that it's aliens, like extraterrestrials, like organic creatures, and others who think it's machines, maybe because that connects with AI, which Kubrick wrote. But ultimately, we don't see these creatures. You know, the monoliths presumably are not the creatures. They are devices that were left by them that are transmitting signals to basically tell them where to go next and how to evolve next. So we don't ever see the creatures that made that monolith, but Kubrick wanted to show them. And in fact, he and Arthur C. Clarke discussed how to visualize them. They had different ideas, and all the way to the end of the production, one of the last things they did when they were shooting the special effects was they shot a sequence with the actor who played Moonwatcher, who's that lead caveman who uses the bone as a weapon. He played this character, and they fitted him in a suit which was covered with polka dots, and they put him against a background of stars, and they somehow inverted the film. I'm probably not describing it very well, but let's just say that they tried very hard to make something that was eerie and unrecognizable and completely new, and Kubrick looked at the result and said, it looks like a guy. (laughs) It looks like a guy in a polka dot suit. Get rid of it. But ultimately, everybody, including Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, came to the conclusion that it was much more effective not to show the aliens and not to get too literal-minded in that that trip that Dave Bowman takes at the end of the movie and to keep it on the edge of abstraction. And you're seeing things that are recognizable, like there's footage of Monument Valley, which you've seen in a lot of John Ford westerns and other westerns, but it's treated so that it's got this crazy psychedelic colors. They use some kind of negative reversal process on the film. 
And there's some animation in there, and there's some slit-scan photography, which was perfected by Douglas Trumbull, where you've got these mirrored images coming at you, seeming to burst off of a horizontal axis. Essentially, what they're running up against was the fact that you cannot visualize that which no one has seen or experienced. It's just not possible. And what you're going to get is a version of something that has been seen before. And if you work really, really hard at it, you can make it seem new or even wonderful or frightening. But ultimately, it's always going to feel connected to something that you knew. And I think Annihilation is on a short list of movies that have shown us the idea of creation in a way that feels new. 2001 managed to do it. The Tree of Life, the creation sequence of Tree of Life did it. And I think uh, David Lynch, episode 8 of Twin Peaks The Return, managed to do it in that atomic bomb sequence. It was a different kind of creation, but I think he found a way, literally found a way into it. And <laughs> Annihilation is another movie that I think pulled it off. And the way they pulled it off was by not trying to replicate the ending of 2001, which is what a lot of science fiction movies make a mistake when they tried to do. And instead he did something different, and it was something more like out of a dream that a person would have literally facing a double of herself that's a mirror image and that seems menacing and it makes a noise that's truly terrifying but then after she's interacted with it in what feels like an extended dance routine which is really daring i started to feel like it wasn't really menacing and that it was just mirroring her and that when she felt fear or anger towards it it returned the favor and when she relaxed a little bit it did also I could talk about that sequence all day. I don't want to bore the listeners, but wow. I mean, it, it knocked me out. And that first time that the noise comes out of the double, that sound effect, which sounds like uh, the vocorder that Peter Frampton uses in his rock and roll from the 70s, except it's like guttural. It makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck, and it's still just describing it makes the hair stand up. It's great. Actually, All the sound stuff. design and the abstraction of sound is what signals the third act or the lighthouse sequence that this is where things are going to get strange and they'll be suggestive but no longer descriptive. Up until then, yes. you feel that you're adventuring into things that get stranger. The characters say things to that effect now and again, although you don't see quite how strange, except that it all leads to this thing that can only be understood as a confrontation with oneself that is not oneself, that feels like you're reading platonic dialogues and they're going to tell you about the same and the other, and about rest and motion, yes. and about being. Yes, Plato in the cave. That's the sort of thing we're dealing with here. And yeah, it's a Bible, it's Plato, it's the teachings of the Buddha. We're getting very, very, very basic when we talk about this movie. The essential texts. Yes, and that's part of what cinema can do and get away with. You don't have to subscribe to any particular text to feel wonder, but it does make us reach for interpretations that seem to get at our fundamentals. How can we even understand it? What are the limits when we try to imagine these sorts of questions like creation? There are certain oppositions that the movie establishes to guide you that are like teams of men versus teams of women. People mm -hmm. who are primarily action-based and people who are primarily knowledge-based. And this protagonist that survives, it's a combination. A soldier woman who is also a scientist. That's true. Somehow manages to bridge the gap and who says about herself that she had a reason going in that would lead to her going out. She had the motivation to experience the thing at the end. And of course, it, the story writing is so sophisticated that you get a sense at least halfway through the movie, if not earlier, that a lot of the narration is intended as a justification in front of a certain tribunal. There are authorities questioning this woman. Those are supposed to be the conventional limits of understanding that experience. 
Yes, and in fact, there's a moment where the guy who's doing the interrogating, at the very end of it, he essentially says, so it was aliens. Yeah. And me, I laughed out loud when he said that because, you know, as you know, if you read me, one of the things that I really, really hate in fan culture and in criticism is this desire to quote-unquote solve things. There's an enormous body of online literature out there devoted to allegedly solving things. Whether it's the end of 2001, the end of The Sopranos, the end of Taxi Driver, Annihilation became that for a while. I hate that. And I don't think that it, filmmakers are hoping that people will do. Like, they want you to think about it and respond to it emotionally. But it's not a crossword puzzle. It's not an equation that can be solved for X. And I think that a lot of that comes out of a very male response to art. I think video games might have made this tendency worse, although there was a touch of it even when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s. Men trying to explain and solve art, and I think it's about dominance. Treat a work of art like it's an opponent and beat it, and then you can move up to the next level or move on to the next thing. And the idea of submitting to a piece of art, of giving up control and letting the art stir things in you and take you to places without a roadmap is something that is anathema to a lot of viewers, mainly men. I keep coming back to it. It's a guy problem. And men get very, very angry sometimes when I tell them that may be your answer, but it's not the answer because it means they've spent hours trying to solve this thing and that that, that may not be the answer. It makes them really mad. And I think Annihilation is opposed to all of that. And I there's something really beautiful and pure about the way that it is constructed. I called it a series of spiritual prompts. It's intended to get you thinking about your own life and thinking about the world around you and going off down your own neural pathways to different discoveries. And I've never spoken to Alex Garland, but I bet you anything that if you ask him what he was hoping to do here, he would have achieved what he set out to do. Just based on his other work as a writer and a writer-director, I really admire him. I think he's trying to get us to think and feel. He's not necessarily trying to fool us or present us with an equation so difficult that no one except him can solve it. I just don't get that kind of a vibe from him. No, you're right. So the question here is how do we deal with perplexity? And primarily yeah. we want a way out. We want to figure, okay, how do I get there? Or how do I get it? Whereas the whole point of the use of sound and images fitly chosen, hopefully, to get a certain emotional response and also to show you, by way of a kind of guide, characters who are supposed to be human to the extent that you can recognize their psychological responses, their emotions, and then to try to get you to think, why are they acting this way? Why are they reacting this way? And how do you react? Yes. You have all these signs there that are supposed to tell you, you need certain personal experiences. There are certain things from abstract questions like what does evolution really say about providence in the sense of is there any special place for being human or is it just an accident? Mm. Is it forever or are we forever endangered? From that all the way to personal questions like characters who are undergoing family disaster, marriage falling apart. Yes, and in fact, a good friend of mine, when I was visiting Los Angeles recently, a friend of mine who saw the movie twice, I asked him, what did you take away from the movie? And I didn't supply my own interpretation, and he hadn't read anything that I'd written about it yet. And he said he thought it was a beautiful film about relationships, about love relationships, but also family relationships, relationships in groups, and what it takes in order to hold a relationship together. And he thought that the heart of the film was Lena and her husband, Kane, whose marriage is falling apart and we don't really get too many of the details about why that is although it's obvious that his having to go off and do things in secret and being gone for long periods of time is probably right at the heart of it 
But at the end, he goes off, he becomes someone else. They separate, and he returns to her, but he's a different person. And then she goes into the same place that he was in, and she changes as well. And when they come out, they're both different people, and yet they're the same person. And he likened it to a couple that splits up, but eventually reunites. And the reason they're able to reunite is they're both different. Again, that's not an interpretation that I personally would have considered, and I don't think it's right or wrong. This sounds almost trite to say this, but Annihilation is like a movie version of being in therapy with a really great therapist. A bad therapist is one who has a preconceived notion of who you are and what's going to make you happy and what you should do with your life and steering you in that preconceived direction in a way that can be unhealthy or unethical. But a great therapist is one who listens to you and is sort of trying to maybe prod you off the obvious path, not to guide you towards the answer that they want you to have, but just to guide you towards a different answer, just to see what happens. Break whatever regular thought patterns that you have and lead you to something that you might not have otherwise considered. And I think this movie does that. Yeah. To be a good filmmaker, you have to be a good practical psychologist. I think that's true for the really good filmmakers. The ones that are essentially showmen who want to just make you... The horror filmmakers who just want to make you jump and, you know, they go, boo, and you go, ah! You know, I don't think it's necessary to have mm -hmm. that skill set. Although it might help a little bit if you're a horror filmmaker to know what makes people tick. But I think if you want to make people feel and think, I think you absolutely have to be more sensitive. Yeah even horror properly understood is a cinema of ideas. The question is, what about life is essentially horrifying. The skill set to say, what is the right fear to evoke here? Or how do you get people to confront a real submerged fear? It can be social, it can be psychological, it could be political, but you'd have to have a way practically of getting your audience there. They didn't think up your idea, they have to experience it. And Garland has a lot of the knack for this to unnerve you and to guide that unnerving in specific directions that, again, yeah, it is like therapy. It's just that like therapy, it requires this vulnerability. You have to open yourself up and put your experiences up for examination, if only within your own <laughs> consciousness. You have to be willing to say, yeah, this kind of reminds me of experiences I've had. I know something about this misery. That's the first thing. It's not a happy movie. It's not happy people doing happy things. It's not happy things happening. You have to deal with certain unpleasant things. The yeah, no, too. when they're going into the shimmer, they are confronting the absolute best or the absolute worst thing that can happen. And there is a strong element of horror to the film. I think it's almost as much of a horror film as it is a science fiction film. But there's always been some overlap between those two genres, yes. I think. Well, you used a phrase, suggestive but no longer descriptive, which I like a lot. And I think that goes to the heart of what, in my opinion, makes a great film of ideas. It can be science fiction, it can be horror, or it can be just some kind of a parable. And there are certain stories that are essentially realistic, that are right on the edge of being non-literal. Like television shows like The Sopranos and Mad Men are always living right on the edge of the uncanny, and sometimes they cross over. Sometimes surreal things happen, and sometimes the dream world seems to merge with the real world. And a lot of times you'll see an episode of those shows where there's nothing, strictly speaking, that is unrealistic, like a deliberate dream moment, and yet the entire thing feels dreamlike in a way that makes you question what you're seeing. And a lot of times the show doesn't answer the question. And I love that kind of storytelling. That's probably my favorite, where you're not entirely sure how you're supposed to take it. And you have to make a decision as a viewer. It's a very active kind of storytelling. Do I agree with it? Do I agree with its view of human nature? Do I agree with its view of life? Do I feel any sense of connection with what's being shown? And it's not escapism. To me, the word escapism means you have to escape the responsibility for having to make any decisions. 
And the opposite of escapism is a film where you're continually having to make choices like every minute of the movie. And I think that's why people find certain kinds of films, quote unquote, boring. I think it's because they are constantly having to ask themselves, how am I supposed to take this? Is it meant to be funny and the joke is not landing or is it not meant to be funny at all? If you have to ask yourself too many questions during a movie, certain people shut down. A lot of times what people prefer is the movie to supply the answers. And the commercial apparatus of cinema is largely based on that. There's no way to escape it, and I wouldn't necessarily say that it's bad. And the vast majority of filmmakers who are reacting against escapism are reacting against that kind of behavior in the audience, and it's a conditioned behavior. That's how I describe a lot of criticism of movies that are unconventional in some way, including genre films. Because, you know, what people want to know is, why is this thing not like the thing that I get 95% of the time when I go to the movies? How dare they? And sometimes the changes that have been made are really not that great. They might have done one or two things that are mildly challenging, but you still see an allergic reaction from people. And it's very, very depressing because the movies that have really lived with me ever since I've seen them are the ones that are more comprised of questions than answers. You know, the the suggestiveness that you're talking about is a big part of that. That goes to the visuals, like the situations in, in Annihilation, where they give you a strange image like that crocodile with the teeth arranged in spirals inside of its mouth, and they give you a possible explanation for it, but it's not definitive. And the people who are made out of plants, those like plant statues of what used to be people, I suppose, they give you a little bit of information about what that might be, but they don't give you any answers that's left unresolved and like almost every major thing in this movie is left unresolved and you have to finish the thought with your own thought i would say that broadly the condition for genre filmmaking which seems to be how we need industry to function is great directors and writers if i have to trust john ford i have no problem with that or howard hawks or david lynch in his own strange way somehow that's required for audiences to go along They'll experience discomfort, they'll experience weird things, and uh, I think of directors now who are very popular, or have been very popular, who nevertheless are very strange people, like Spielberg. Yeah. People are willing to trust him, because they're fairly safe in his hands. Yeah, Spielberg's a weird case. He's a weird case. I love Spielberg. I absolutely adore Spielberg, but I always say Spielberg is smarter than everyone who thinks they're smarter than Spielberg. And one piece of evidence of that is that people keep describing his movies as feel-good movies. And if you actually look at what happens in his movies, almost none of his films fit that description. Yeah. Even something like Jurassic Park, somebody builds uh, this park and it completely falls apart and the animals eat the guests and a handful of people are lucky to get out with their lives. (laughs) That's yeah. how that movie, you know, in E.T., it's a bittersweet ending. He has to go back to his home planet and Close Encounters, like, hero yeah. of Close Encounters. It's about a guy who chooses uh, selfishness, essentially. I mean, it's kind of the ultimate 70s film in that way. Yep. But, uh, I mean, you know, we could have a whole separate discussion about Spielberg. But, sure. But and definitely, they, uh, all of these really interesting directors have something infuriating, something that is untamed. And either they don't particularly care what you want from them, or they pretend like they care and they ultimately don't care. I think the true genius of Spielberg is in tricking us into thinking that he cares about what we want. Well, and, at least uh, he makes an effort to bring you along. Yeah, yeah, he does. Maybe that's what trust is like in a movie theater. You need to trust that your director will be worth your time, and he needs to earn that trust to some extent. These are always very tricky to negotiate because nobody can predict his career in advance. But, of course, you can tell, at least at some level in a director's career, that he's picky about his audience. And that pickiness yeah. may go in different directions 
politicians. It could be popular or unpopular. But it is there because they're thinking people and they know people. And that's the strange thing, how much they know about other people and how well they hide it. That's another thing that somebody like Spielberg, who's very popular, and somebody who's unpopular would have in common. They know a lot more about their audience than their audience would suppose. Yes. That, that's what audiences react to. How can you really trust these guys? With your time, okay. with your hopes, with the stuff that you would be laying out and making yourself vulnerable. And then, of course, there's always a fear of being played for a sucker. How do you know that the guy whose imagery is so pretentious, how do you know that he really has something deep when, in fact, it might all be a scam? And these things yeah. seem to have gotten worse in certain ways as more people pretend to be sophisticated. There's less willingness to say, well, being sophisticated means giving somebody a chance to say what he's got. Yeah, I think so. I think about some of the movies that have borrowed elements from 2001 but are not on its level. Like Contact is a movie that I really think for a long time felt like it was in the weight class of a 2001. I mean, certainly in terms of the images. And then it gets to the end and it becomes very trite and reductive. There's a touch of lack of resolution. She can't prove what happened and during that gap in the tape. But we know what happened. We were there. Yeah. So there's really no mystery to the film. Whereas in 2001 or Annihilation, there is mystery. You don't really know what happened. You get the general outlines of it enough to sketch in your own interpretation of what it meant. But the question mark is never turned into a period. And I think that's really the heart of it. And I think when you attach two specific meanings to an event that is supposed to be mysterious and unresolved, then you kill it. And the first example I can think of is in the Christmas of 1979 when I was a kid there were two big expensive science fiction movies that were released The Black Hole and Star Trek The Motion Picture and both of those were inspired by 2001 they stole a lot from 2001 particularly in the end and the plot of Star Trek The Motion Picture is essentially if they had released the Discovery spacecraft and it was unmanned and it came back encrusted with the remains of this hyper-intelligent civilization of machines and it basically had a god complex the black hole was 20,000 leagues under the sea, but it was set in space. And at the end, they go into the black hole. But, well, it's the ending of 2001. And you see galactic vistas and things happening. But it's heaven and hell. Like, you see angels and devils. Is that really what you'd see if you went into a black hole? Is like signifiers of the most conventional Christian iconography? That doesn't seem likely to me. Unless it was ascribed to the subjective point of view of a certain character, which it was not. Yeah, and, that would have been the way. Yeah, and I think it's better to leave these things open. And of course, the irony of it is the more open-ended the movie is, the less likely it is to find a commercial audience. And 2001 is a big anomaly because it was, I yes. believe, the top grossing film of 1968. Yep. I think Close Encounters probably qualifies. Like, that's a movie that's not particularly hard to follow, and it's rooted in emotions and everything. But you never learn what kind of aliens these are. You don't really know what they wanted why they took all those people, these aliens in Close Encounters abducted, all of these people, like all the people in the Bermuda Triangle and other places, and suddenly they're bringing them back. They're depositing the ships and the planes in all these strange locations to be found. And it's a religious film. And yeah, so it I is about definitely put uh, Close Encounters on that short list of the great true science fiction films. And again, it ends with the ship going back. You never, except in the special edition, which Spielberg has disowned, you never go inside the spaceship. Yeah. The whole emotional point is that Richard Dreyfus is gone and you're actually left behind. The yeah, you're left behind. Show. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about being left behind? So it puts you in the position of Richard Dreyfus's children. Yep. You know, daddy is gone. How does that feel? See, again, all of a sudden, it's not such a feel-good movie, is it? 
Yes. <laughs> and that's part of what audiences really respond to. You have to take a chance. But the sense in which the movie was of its time was that. It spoke to great anxieties and the kind of search for meaning, the kind of dissatisfaction with certain social arrangements. But it can't really solve it for people. It can only bring them up to the brink, so to speak, of confronting that. And yeah. there are limits to what the movies can do. That's also part of what makes good movies. They're not going to fix your life for you, but they could bring you a degree of self-knowledge. Right. If, of course, you deal well with your vulnerability and are actually in the hands of a director who has something serious to say. Like you were saying about the ending of Annihilation, this woman who goes through this increasingly more terrifying sequence of strange things and is more and more aware throughout of her own failings and remembers with guilt and shame her own failures, nevertheless has to not let that break her. And actually it almost does, just like in the scene when the double forces her up against the wall and the more she strives against it, right? So you see these things fire up and connect in ways that are not pre-established, but they kind of strike you. And once you start seeing a few, start seeing a few more add up. And she has to have the air knocked out of her. She collapses almost out of breath. Well, but she gives in. What happens is she stops fighting. Exactly. The double was not trying to attack her. I think it was mirroring her. But when she tries to go for the door and it grabs her and it presses against her and it almost looks like a rape. I know what you mean. Exactly. It's very uncomfortable to see. But when you get close to it, you realize that it's like it doesn't want her to leave. Exactly. doesn't want to let go of her, which, you know, leads me back to this idea of the movie being about grief and you know the grief doesn't want you to let go of it that was my read on it initially but in that entire sequence with the double it reminded me of all things of a line from star wars which is when luke skywalker is trying out the lightsaber for the first time and he asks obi-wan what is the force and luke says so it controls your actions and obi-wan says yes but it also obeys your commands it's that word also that i think is important meaning both things are happening at the same time and I think that that double in that scene, it's controlling her actions and it's also obeying her commands. It's taking its cues from her. And when she wants to change the behavior of the double, when she wants to change the energy in that room, she has to change her own energy. Yeah. Once she banishes the fear, the terror, or the anger, then she's able to direct it to get to the point where she can hand it that grenade and leave. And it yep. trusts her. It obeys her commands, yep. essentially. Yes. And this is all conveyed wordlessly, which I think is incredible. Yep, you need to build all the tension. That sequence of events, she first sees her husband self-destruct because of the question of identity. He says, I used to think I knew who I was. And to her, that would mean, what did we do to our marriage? You know, I love the character. I love that her husband is named Kane. It's, of course, the name of the main character of Citizen Kane, who is a mystery. People are trying to solve the puzzle that is Charles Foster Kane. And at the end, you see the sled. And, you know, what a lot of people forget is the sled does not answer the question of who Kane was. People who watch that film, having been conditioned by what most movies do, they look at it and go, oh, it was the sled, but you don't think about whether or not it really answers the question. So it seems wonderful that this character would be named Kane because her story is about figuring out what happened to her husband. You know, she's in the position of the reporter in Citizen yeah. Kane and was into the shimmer. But Kane is also the name of the character played by John Hurt in Alien, who ingests the xenomorph and is destroyed by it and unleashes this force that, that eventually takes down all but one of the crew. And so he's simultaneously a parasitic host and he is a mystery in a human hall of mirrors. Just with one syllable, we've got like a nexus created between two other classic films, which I think is beautiful. And there's a lot of that kind of thing in the movie. 
you know, that we mentioned the 2001 and Terrence Malick, but there's also a lot of Tarkovsky in there. I was thinking about the first monster they see, the alligator. That's a Shark Jaws reference. Not yeah. Just there's a monster trying to get them, but it turns out that there's a much worse horror than the monster after you killed him and you realize what it really is, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. Their first portent of what's coming. Life itself is not simply good. Life is mm -hmm. partly horrifying. Yes. So. Well, and it has no opinion on you. Yeah. That's the most important thing. Like, if you want to become an adult, you have to accept the fact that the universe has no opinion on you. And that's the constitutive experience of horror cinema. If you want to be serious, you have to see all the horrifying stuff that happen randomly. Well, randomly, but then there are some kinds of horror films where there's a theological or biblical point of view where the bad things that happen to people are punishment for bad things that they did. But uh, then, on the other yeah. hand, there's the inscrutable, mysterious horror, like The Thing. Now there's been three versions of The Thing, but I think The Creature in The Thing is, like most of John Carpenter's horror movies, it's this implacable, unknowable force, and the question of whether it's evil or not can't even be answered. We perceive it as evil because it wants to destroy us, but I don't think that you can really call any of the destructive creatures in his movies evil, except in relation to people who are not suffering that condition. Yeah, so your first intuition about it is to do with evil, but then there is this other matter that it might just be life. Yeah. So what's worrisome about the ending of Annihilation and people who reject it get a good deal out of rejecting it because they don't have to confront this matter. Most of us eat meat, but we would never do that to people. There is a sacred rejection of that. And yeah. you don't have to believe in God not to eat human flesh or right. Greek gods or Norse gods. Atheists don't do it either. Scientists don't do it either. Why is that there? But I don't know. There are certain sacred rejections. <laughs> yeah. But nowadays you've got, say, the Neil deGrasse Tysons who tell you that no human thing matters. He's on Twitter to show that he's better than you because he can disabuse any human opinion, any cultural artifact. But if nothing human matters, why are we so protective of our dead and so revolved mm. by the thought of eating them? Mm. And uh, Because we believe humans are special at some level. Well, I think there's something symbolic. I can't believe we're on cannibalism now. But like in the act of eating human flesh, it's a form of self-annihilation. I think, exactly. I think that you have to say exactly. like, human life does not matter and therefore you do not matter. Exactly. There's a very primal, symbolic repudiation of your humanity when you do that. And that's why, at the end of Annihilation, Cain is revealed to have annihilated himself. He couldn't deal with the notion. He used to think he was Cain, he says. But then he says, but what if I'm you, or are you me? If he's not well, himself, he can't deal with that. The perplexity, he deals with it by committing suicide. He does, but you know, that ending is so fascinating to me because the question of whether or not they are each of them the same person or a different person is also left unresolved. And I've actually had a number exactly. of discussions with people who've seen the film, and particularly with people who didn't like the film. Again, when you treat it like a puzzle, of course you're going to come away from it being disappointed, but it's like, was that the real Lena? And my answer is, I don't think the question, is that the real Lena, is one that necessarily should be asked in relation to this movie. I mean, I think yes. The answer is yes, and the answer is also no. Exactly. I think it's a matter of degrees. I don't think it's either or. There's like a sliding scale of how close are they to the original version. Yeah. And I think that the version of Lena at the end is closer to the original version than, say, Kane is. But I think they're both pretty far away from who they were before. Yeah. That's a transformative experience. They were both drawn to it, but they dealt with it in very different ways, which have to do with their characters, but also with something else. She gets the benefit of other people's experience. Throughout the story, she sees how other people have dealt with it.
this is essential to who she is and I think she starts out as a very dismissive sort of person. Her scientific view of things is shown as shallow in the beginning but you see that aside from her public presentation say in class her inner life is very troubled and she has experiences that she would never acknowledge but which are very important and have led her to a crisis and she is capable of experiencing shame and guilt and very powerful emotions that make you ask yourself who are you and are you a good person? Yeah. That means you have to take questions of humanity essentially seriously. And as a scientist, she doesn't. So what she says is a reduplication of cells. It works in powers of two. Two become four, four become eight, mm-hmm. etc. And then she says, and that means there was originally just one. Right. Now you could say that's two to the power of zero mathematically. That's one. But the important thing there is, if everything replicates something before it, how could there ever have been a beginning? Well, then all of a sudden you're back to the Old Testament. Yes. And the New Testament. You could say that that's the strange situation of our science. We believe in the Big Bang. And unfortunately, there's only one precedent for that, so to speak. It's religion. It is. It's weird. And it's it's troubling. It makes you think. It does. Well, we're bringing it back again to Arthur C. Clarke, one of the most famous quotes. Any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. And I have always believed that religion is just an attempt to explain that which we're not evolved enough to explain. And we now know that God's opinion has nothing to do with how much rain fell or didn't fall today. We now know that because, you know, we have science. And, you know, the Big Bang, I think it's really fascinating to me that the Big Bang is essentially uh, let there be light. And we're trying to find a scientific explanation for the book of Genesis. Yeah. I think Terrence Malick kind of wedded those two things beautifully in that sequence of Tree of Life. Yes. And there's, again, Garland's connection to that because he's also concerned with what would creation really mean? We use that word a lot. Everybody's supposed to be creative. If you're not, you're somehow a deficient human being. But science and the Bible teach you that creation came out of nothing, so that's okay. But if creation isn't out of nothing, then it's out of destroying something else. Right. That's the stuff that Garland is getting at. You're going to have annihilation to have creation. And somehow we're stuck with the legacy of it's either creation out of nothing or creation by destruction. And somehow we've abandoned the teaching of creatio ex nihilo. But the consequence is we have to deal with this horror now. It means that all creation has to be done by destruction. And we have to be destructive to be creative, which is not the thought we embrace most of the time. Well, no, but, you know, some of the, well, we're, we're wandering down yet a different, down a different path here, which is not necessarily such a bad thing. But I should, I should go soon because I actually have some writing. Yes. But I did want to say in passing that every conversation I have about this film is a conversation that could conceivably go all day long if I didn't have other things to do. And that's really <laughs> a compliment to the movie. Yes, and and yes. I never turned down an opportunity to talk about this movie with people. Like, no two people had exactly the same response. And that's an amazing thing to me. It tells me that Alex Garland has created what amounts to an essential text. Then it portends great things from him in the future. I think so. I hope that whoever gives him money to make a movie next has enough imagination to see what they've got. You know, you mentioned this at the top of the recording, but I really think Paramount blew it with this movie. I mean, and I'm not just saying that because I like the movie, but I think this movie had a chance to be, if not, you know, like a Star Wars or Marvel level hit, I think at least on the level of something like Arrival. Yeah. You're right. And when you look at how people respond to this movie, they respond to it very intensely. And they talk about it and they want to go read about it and they want to discuss it with their friends. And like that is a word of mouth movie. And this movie is still playing in certain theaters, despite having essentially been dumped by Paramount. You know, it's limped its way past, I think it's like up to $35 million or something. 
I suppose you could say, well, they made the right decision in selling the overseas rights to Netflix because they made their money back. But think of all the money that they could have made if they had had the imagination to properly promote this film. People listening, go see it on Netflix. At least Alex Garland should get something out of this. And the other people who made the movie, it really is their career on the line. I have a lot of help. Natalie Portman, who really drove this project. Scarlett Johansson and Natalie Portman are two people who deserve to be appreciated more for the way that they're using their star power to get interesting films made. Yep, and they're trying to go in very unusual directions to broaden what audiences will have as a real opportunity, as a real available option at the theater near them. Not a lot are doing that, so hopefully this works out. At least it becomes a Netflix hit of some kind, which we can never measure because we don't have the data, but maybe it'll have measurable effects. So, thank you for joining me, first of all. I'll write to you on Twitter. Let's talk about the dark side of Spielberg some other time. I think all that would the be disturbing great. things. That. Right? That's, he's at the point where people need to talk about his legacy, and I think there's a lot to talk about. Is there's a lot to talk about, stuff. definitely. definitely. So thanks a lot for joining me, and good luck with writing, meanwhile. Looking forward okay. to it. Thanks a lot. Take care. All the best. Bye.